TFM. Welcome, boomers, to another episode of Warp Five, our dedicated Star Trek Enterprise podcast. I'm Christopher Jones, and with me, as he always is, is my esteemed co-host Matthew Rushing. And Matthew, I have to say, I'm so glad that you pulled out your little glowing green eyepiece today, so I could see you in the dark as we record this episode about Rogue Planet. Well, yeah, Chris. You know, I just figured uh, it seemed like the smart thing to do uh, since it's just so dark in here. I don't know why we can't turn on the lights. I know. It's the darkest place I've ever recorded a podcast. And the other thing is, I don't see any stars around. Yeah, you know, it's great, though, because uh, at least I have a face for podcasting. So uh, (laughs) nobody has to worry about seeing it. (laughs) I guess that's true of us both, right? (laughs) <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> let's um, let's build a campfire and get started talking about today's episode. Here's a quick rundown for those of you who don't remember the story very well. A camping trip turns mysterious and potentially deadly when giant snails get into Captain Archer's head. Actually, they enter through telepathy, not the ear canal. And they're being hunted by an alien race who visits this dark rogue planet from time to time for sport. Because hunting these snails, which they call wraiths, is a challenge for them. Archer and the crew of the Enterprise also face a challenge as they attempt to unravel the mystery of the beautiful woman in a blue dress with apple blossoms in her hair. Now, Matthew, with a setup like that... I have to think that you're just super (laughs) excited to talk about this first season episode of Enterprise today. Yeah, that's that's the word that I was uh, I was actually thinking that that was that was it. Um, No, this is, you know, uh, we were talking before the show and, and I think that there are probably quite a few people who do tend to think of this maybe this bit of of season one here where we kind of hit a lull almost, I feel like, in the creativity. And, you know, I think this is one of the places, you know, we've talked a bunch with the Orb and with Enterprise that there are places where we really like the fact that you have more episodes a season. And (laughs) sometimes that's a blessing and sometimes it's a curse. And I think these, I would say specifically, this episode definitely shows us that you don't necessarily always want more episodes a season. I think you're right there. I think that this and a few of the upcoming episodes together are the poster children for why Scott Bakula said that we don't need 26 episodes per season. Of course, that's not the real reason. But yeah, definitely most seasons of Star Trek from the next generation onward have those episodes where you can feel that the writers are trying to fill out the season because they do have that mandate of 26 episodes. And you get a few clunkers here and there. And this is one of those, which is, I'm not going to say that it's a clunker per se, but it definitely does feel like it's Mm -hmm. on the weaker side creatively, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
So why don't we talk about the scientific concept first? Andre Bormanis, who was the science advisor in later years of Star Trek and did a bit of writing, he worked on the story concept for this episode, although he isn't credited. The story is by Rick Berman, Brandon Braga, and Chris Black, and then Chris Black did the teleplay. But Andre wanted to do something, he said, that was a little bit different. So he came up with the idea of this rogue planet that's nevertheless M-class because the venting of gases and heat from the interior, kind of like geothermal remnants in the core of the planet, keep it warm enough that life can exist on the planet, even though it's not orbiting a star. And so the Enterprise crew, they come across this rogue planet. And for them, it's something really new and interesting. Although I would think that by the 22nd century, probably scientifically, they would be well aware of this. But in the early 2000s, the writers, for them, it was a kind of a new scientific concept. So for us as viewers, however, I don't know if it's that new. It reminds me of things that we've seen like Meridian on DS9, where you've got the planet that just appears from time to time. And you've got, you know, in the original series, you've got an asteroid that's actually people's home. So it's not a completely new concept. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely not completely new. I do think that it is an interesting idea, the idea that people could live on a planet like this. I, I still think that the reality of this is is probably pretty far-fetched. You know, I can't, you know, to, to have any kind of life like this show up on a planet, I mean, things have to be perfect, mm-hmm. right? We know that about our own planet. So I, I think it, it's a fun idea, but the actual scientific nature of it is pretty implausible. I mean, you know, when we're going to think about things that the scientific community of Vulcan and earth might be able to agree on is in all honesty, this is not really reality. (laughs) It'd probably be rare. Now it is interesting from a scientific standpoint that the idea of rogue planets is a real thing. And scientists believe there are billions, maybe even trillions of rogue planets in our galaxy. They may have formed around a star and been ejected. Some of them may have been forming right, and just, right. you know, they never built up enough mass to become a brown dwarf. And so they're kind of like a planet. And it is believed that it is possible that there could be some like radioisotopes or geothermal activity at a core of a planet that would allow the surface temperature to be warm enough that water could melt and maybe some life could form. So I, I don't think it's implausible for there to be a rogue planet like this where there's some kind of life on it. But the kind of life that we're seeing here with these wraith snails that are advanced and help telepathy and can get in your head and make you imagine things, that seems a bit more into the fantasy realm than what we're accustomed to in Star Trek. Well, and I mean, I do think it's an interesting idea, right? Like, I think that the problem kind of comes with the execution of the Mm -hmm. idea more so than the idea itself. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. And 
while we're talking about it, reminding us of things, just a quick mention, because you and I do the orb together where we talk about DS9. One of my first thoughts when I watched this episode is Second Sight, where there's mm. that uh, girl in the station, Fena, who's actually like a psycho-projective, telepathically created person who was created by this other woman named Nadell, and Cisco is drawn to her. And it's yep. just very similar to the way that Archer here is drawn to the Wraith, although the setup for it's different. But the story reminded me a lot of that. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And I do think that in some ways that's one of the things that makes these episodes here in this next run for a bit. We do kind of feel like we've been there before with a lot of these ideas. And so it doesn't feel as fresh as a lot of the other stuff we were getting Mm -hmm. with Enterprise so far. It feels like this episode, this story could be done on just about any Star Trek series, which is the other thing that gets me from time to time. And and that's fine. I mean, there are some excellent episodes of Star Trek that you could do on a different series and they would work really well. That book that we sometimes mention on here, that unauthorized guide to Enterprise, there is a funny thing they said about this episode. They said this has unproduced Chakotay story written all over it. (laughs) (laughs) that's yeah pretty true yeah i I can see that for sure all right well let's jump into characters a little bit because we like to talk about that on warp five and we get a bit of a focus here on reed and archer who both apparently were in the boy scouts or the eagle scouts on earth and i thought that was kind of interesting and it makes sense actually for both of them and for reed We do see Reed. I feel like he's a little bit more relaxed. He's a little bit more opening up here. We talked a couple of episodes ago about whether Reed's experiences might lead him to start opening up and relaxing a bit. Did you see anything here where you feel like they're making progress in writing him in that sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I I 100% did. And I thought it was kind of fun because... I think one of the things we learn about Reed here is that he's really very competitive. And uh, you can see that with, you know, his discussion with Archer about the idea of the merit badges. And you can tell that he's very excited that he has more merit badges than the captain. As you know, I think one probably would. (laughs) Right. you're in this kind of position. Wouldn't it have been um, cool if if Reed, after this episode, if he had started wearing his merit badges on his Starfleet uniform, like he had them stitched on, <laughs> he's walking around the ship, and every time he sees Archer, he makes sure that he turns so that Archer can see those merit badges? Uh, yes, that would be very funny. Um, I would love that, actually. I, I think, you know... Not only do we see that he is pretty competitive, but I I think that there is a lot of this character who is also very traditional uh, in the sense that, uh, you know, we know where he comes from with his family. And I think we can see that if he could hunt without offending the -hmm. other people, uh, he probably would. I I think uh, that's something that we kind of learn about him, like that he might not hold those things to in in the quite the same way Mm -hmm. so yeah i mean i really enjoyed this episode for the character i thought it was a lot of fun to be able to get behind the scenes and kind of in his head a little bit 
to see what he enjoys as a character. Yeah. I think that it's it is that competitive nature that you mentioned. I don't think that he's so interested in hunting to kill anything, but he was interested, for example, in how the Eska were able to sneak up on them. So as an armory officer, it's something that he finds interesting. It reminds me of that yep. that uh, scene in A Matter of Time on The Next Generation, where Rasmussen is asking people a question and Worf is interested in the weapons, right? And he says, oh, Worf, yes. cling on, you know. So it's it's kind of like that, where I think that... I think Reed likes a challenge and I think that he's interested in things that he might can learn more about that would help him uh, do better no, in his work. I, yeah. I definitely agree with that. And I, I think it, what it just goes to show is that he has a variety of different interests, you mm-hmm. know, and I think what I was kind of interested in here too, is that he did seem to be a character who was willing to kind of be a little bit, more on the side of these new aliens and kind of what they did rather than his own necessarily morality about things. Mm-hmm. So that's something I kind of picked up as well. I mean, I could be reading into it a little bit too much, but that also seemed to be something that um, I saw with this character. Yeah. Well, speaking of morality, then let's talk about Archer a little bit because the beginning of the story or the main part of the story, of course, is that Archer has encountered this beautiful woman and he feels like he's drawn to her and he feels like he knows her, but he doesn't know why. Then the episode gets into the question of whether humans have the right to interfere with what's going on here on the planet. And when he finds out that these are potentially sentient life forms, of course, he's unhappy with the fact that they're being hunted. So. Right. I don't think that the intention of this episode is to be about the establishment of a prime directive, but I do think that what plays out does fit in a bit into that continuing journey towards needing some kind of non-interference directive, which we've talked about. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is, yeah, it is interesting here because... Obviously, Archer interferes in a way, and and the way that he interferes is to find a way to help a species that is actually, I think, much more intelligent than these people are giving them credit for. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that was actually really disturbing to me is that as they were describing these wraiths that they hunt, they sounded very much like changelings. Yeah, they did. Where they they can legitimately become whatever that the you know when you look at them on a sensor they just they become a rock or a tree right, or right. an animal or and so uh you know I, I think in many ways because you know the, the, these beings are um the way that they are you know they don't have a major civilization or anything to me uh, I can't say that Archer doesn't make the right call and giving them help. I mean, he doesn't stop the people from being able to hunt them. He can't do that, but he does help people in need and people, again, that have asked for it. 
you know, this mm-hmm. is an interesting thing because here he makes the choice to help them where he didn't before. Right. And this is another place where he was legitimately asked for help. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, it is a case of did they ask for help? I also feel like this one is a bit more... Uh, first of all, for me, I don't think something like the Prime Directive would apply here because we're not even talking about is this species warp capable or not warp capable. This species doesn't even have any type of civilization. And mm-hmm. maybe it's human-centric for me to say this, but I don't see there as being potential that they're going to develop any spacefaring civilization. I say it might be human-centric of me because there are a few occasions in Star Trek, certainly in science fiction in general, where you have a species that doesn't build spaceships, but they do explore the galaxy using their minds. They're able to project themselves somewhere else. So Mm -hmm. it would be wrong of us to just flat out say, these people don't matter because they're not building a civilization with towering buildings and spaceships and all the things that we associate with civilization. However, watching this episode, I take this more as being like Archer making the decision to protect an endangered species, like we might do here on Earth, where there's an animal that's endangered, we don't want it to die out, and we put measures in place Mm -hmm. to prevent that from happening. And in this case, because they do have intelligence, he's able to give them something that they can mm-hmm. use to protect themselves. So it's more along those lines. Well, and I, I think the one thing that this episode does have is that this is a truly intelligent species and alien species, mm-hmm. right? I think that's one of the things that makes them very interesting. And again, I think they're most akin to the founders. Mm-hmm. And we would all consider the founders to be completely sentient. And oh, yeah, so I, I think... You know, one of the things that I really love about the episode and maybe one of the few things, but one of the things I think is really great is this opportunity to see that, you know, Archer's desire to help this species, especially when he understands what they are, comes from this fact is that they are helpless. You know, they don't have the ability to save themselves from a more advanced species that wants to kill them. And and who knows what this species could become one day, right? Um, They already are quite intelligent, it seems like. They just seem to be happy living a very different type of life than we do. And that doesn't make it wrong or bad or not worth saving. And so I, I think the way it is kind of portrayed in this show almost is that, I guess... It doesn't go far enough. I wish it went far enough in, in realizing that, you know, this is just because it's completely alien to us doesn't mean it's not worth it, it's not worth having its life. You know, like mm-hmm. it has a right to life, I think, and it has a right to life to not be hunted and to be killed because for the convenience of these other people or the joy of these other people like it's it's pretty disturbing actually when we realize what they're killing and so i i think the episode only skirts the issue and it's disappointing because if it really wanted to make 
a good statement. It could have taken this a lot farther, and I think it should have, and it probably would have been a much better episode if it had. Yeah. You know, I'm also thinking, what if aliens had come to Earth in the 18th, 19th century and given whales some way to protect themselves from hunters, from human hunters? It kind of reminds me of something like that. And had they done that, of course, Kirk and his crew would not have needed to rescue Earth from destruction when the whale probe came back, because it turns out that the whales actually are very intelligent and someone was coming to check on them. So you you never know. Right. And I, I mean, I don't know if I would go quite so far, but I do. I I think what the, the correlation in the, is is really interesting. And again, I mean. I think what makes these aliens quite different is that they literally can communicate with you mm-hmm. and they have the ability to do all those things they don't necessarily want to, per se, mm-hmm. or they haven't chosen to. But just because they have it doesn't mean they don't, they can't or won't. Right. So, I, you know, I just, I really do think it is disappointing to me that the episode kind of stays very much on the surface of all of this instead of really diving in deep to the questions that it could be asking. Right, right. About the changeling uh, resemblance. One thing that is interesting about this episode is that what we see on the screen versus what is intended as the reality of these aliens is not clear to me because we do see especially at the end when the woman leaves and she transforms back into the snail. Mm-hmm. You know, it appears like she's taking this corporeal form of actually being a human woman and then she's turning back into the snail the way that a founder, a changeling, can take mm-hmm. the form of something else. But I, I feel a little bit like that may be done just because it's a television show and they want to make it clear to us that she is actually this creature and she's transforming. And I mm-hmm. wonder if in reality, they they aren't shapeshifters. They just make you see them as something else or they can make your scanning equipment detect something else like a rock, you know, which is mentioned here. Whereas mm-hmm. in, in reality, they don't actually change shapes at all. It's just some kind of telepathy, some kind of projection. And if so, I think that's an interesting take on an alien that is different than the founders, but still falls into that category of changelings that we've seen, not just the changelings on DS9, but there have been a few other races that we've seen that can Mm -hmm. alter their forms. Uh, You know, I I think that's one of the places, again, where the episode just, it doesn't really dig in deep you know, to any of those type of questions, right? Mm -hmm. I I think everything that you're asking is a lot more than the episode actually asks. And that's really a disappointment in the episode because that's not something we've been seeing so far, really, I feel like on Enterprise, right? I mean, I I think we've both been mostly happy with the episodes we've been getting and the questions they've been asking. And and this one, I think there's a, a place for us to really kind of dive in. And it's it seems much happier just being on the surface. Yeah. Uh, so, well, which is disappointing. It feels like this idea of having this Yeats poem, the Song of the Wandering Angus, as 
as like a thread of what is playing out in Archer's mind, what's connecting Archer from his childhood to now, and something lingering in the back of his mind. It's an interesting idea. I think most of us have these things that we either they're stories or poems or they're songs or they're events, things that happen, but they're from our childhood and they're part of who we are. We don't think about them very much and sometimes they surface. And so having that as being this thread, I think is kind of interesting, but I think that maybe there was a little bit too much uh, focus. Focus isn't the right word. Maybe the idea of making that a thread in the story as being clever, interesting, overshadowed, digging deeper into some of the subjects that we're talking about. Yeah. No, I mean, I I think you're 100% right. Yeah. Like, here's a clever idea, but in the end, mm-hmm. it, it results in maybe an unsatisfying mm-hmm. story. Well, and I think that's one of the ways in which uh, we really see the story pokes at Archer uh, for you know, his interest in this quote unquote woman and what it does become is like what you said, this whole idea of these things that kind of live in our memories that are just, you know, like, like what, what happens with Archer here? Like it's something that probably was in his memory and kind of would be a part of his dream life, you know, part of the subconscious and gets pulled out. And that's, that's the thing to which he knows what this is because it is something that's so ingrained in him, but it's not necessarily something at at the forefront of his mind. It's Mm -hmm. literally just a part of his subconscious. And that's really fascinating. You know, we start at this one level where it seems very kind of like surfacey, you know, we can just make fun of Archer for being excited about a woman in her nightgown. And yet what this is, is something so much deeper and it is truly a part of him, right? Like mm-hmm. it's this thing to which something that he and his mother did and experienced together with this poem became this thing that lived in his mind and kind of became a part of him. And he didn't even realize it until it's kind of standing in front of him, which was, I mean, again, that's a really interesting kind of philosophical and and almost somewhat theological thing, right? You could go in so many different ways and the the episode just never really does that. And it's disappointing, too, because, you know, they hired uh, Stephanie Nisnik to Mm -hmm. play this character and she's phenomenal. Um, I've loved her as she was in um one of my favorite shows called Everwood. She was so good yeah. in that. Of course, she's in Insurrection. Yeah, she's the um, true. So she's an excellent helmsman yeah. in Insurrection. Yeah, mm. and and you know, really, they she barely has anything to do in this episode, which is I think the biggest frustration with it is that it could have been so much more. Yeah. Well. You know, T'Pol takes that angle with Archer of, oh, would you be so interested if it were a scantily clad male in the woods instead of a female? Uh, that, I don't know, I didn't really buy into that angle. She's taken that angle with Trip before as well when he went to the Zerillion ship and he came back pregnant. He, she just assumes mm-hmm. that he did something and now she's making assumptions about Archer, which I found odd because... There's nothing in Archer's character that would suggest that that's how he thinks or that's how he would behave. What we've seen of Archer up to this point, you know, I don't think of Archer in that way. 
there are, you know, if it were Riker, maybe I might say, okay, maybe you have a valid point there. But with Archer, I didn't see that. So I didn't Mm -hmm. really, luckily they didn't dwell on that too long in the episode, but I thought it was just interesting about maybe how T'Pol sees humans in general or human males. Right. Yeah, no, I I think uh, you make a great point is the fact that that she has done this before. And I think one of the things that that does show is that she does have preconceptions about humans that are continually being challenged. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I think that was the thing that was really interesting about this episode is that we do see some character development and relationship building between Archer and Trip where he can have this honest conversation with Trip. He's like, have I ever done anything like this before? Have I ever behaved like this before? And Trip's like, no, I mean, I guess not until now. And so, you know, we we do see that this isn't in his character, like you said. I think the episode brightly points out, no, this is not who Archer is. And therefore, we should trust him because... We have somebody who's known him for years upon years vouching for the fact that Archer isn't this type of person and isn't crazy here. Like he's logically deducing things in, in that conversation he has with DePaul. Mm-hmm. He's saying, hey, I, I, you know, I'm putting all the pieces together here in a very scientific way. And so therefore, you should also be paying attention to me and not discount what I'm saying. Right. And yeah, listen to people who have known someone for years and years and actually know that person instead of relying on your assumptions or your view of of someone you don't really know or don't know very well. Also, before we get away from the poem part, I'm just thinking as we're talking, to be fair creatively, I'm thinking that if you need this snail species to have some way to reach out to Archer to get his help. I do like the idea that they pulled something out from his childhood, something that's in the back of his mind that really connects with him, instead of it just being generic, like, oh, there are aliens in my head and they're telling me they need help. Because it it brings the story to a personal level for Archer. So it is less about this encounter with aliens and it's more about the the personal reaction to the situation and about Archer as a character and what does he do when he feels this connection and like he personally needs to take action on something. Well, and I, I think, you know, like th- the whole point of this is that it's something that's so ingrained in him that it does make him feel as though he has to do this right, right. it's this and and i it's think part again, of that's who one he of the things, is even mm-hmm. though he doesn't yes. think about it very much exactly exactly and uh so i think by creating the the, the alien's ability to truly read a person and focus in on them like this and find something like this it it again it, it it makes it more interesting than it would have been if it had been much more surfacey. Mm-hmm. And it's just a place where we just don't push it 
as far as we would want. I mean, even the conversation I feel like we're having is pushing it farther than oh, they do in the episode. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we're we're writing three installments of Rogue Planet here. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's talk about one more topic. And this may be a bit of a shorter episode of Warp 5. But this I found interesting that Chris Black, who wrote the story together with Braga and Berman and did the teleplay, has said that this is not intended to be an anti-hunting story. And if you watch it, I think it's easy for you to feel that it is an anti-hunting story. It's certainly a story about hunting, at least on the surface. But I think Chris Black's dad was a hunter. It's part of his background. So he's not trying to say hunting is bad, even though we do get to that point where Archer is trying to help the alien species to protect themselves from the hunting. And there's that whole question about whether we should be able to prevent them from coming here and hunting in the first place. So anyway, that's whatever it is. But what I found interesting about all of this is that here is a case where the writer of a story is saying, the thing you think my story is about isn't what I intended the story to be about. And I just thought that highlighted something that pops up quite often in discourse these days when people talk about television and they get very offended or they become outraged about what they've watched because they believe that they know the point of the story that the author was trying to make. But actually, that's not the intention. And mm -hmm. it, it, it was just a case where I thought, yeah, you know, here's a moment where you could watch this and think one thing and you might be bothered by what you think is the message of it. But actually, the, the writer had something else in mind. I think, you know, it is interesting because it, I, I never took it as this is a anti-hunting episode, honestly, myself, because... I, I feel like this episode is much more about the willful degradation of a species. You know, we this the hunters make all of these excuses as for why they should be able to hunt these these things. They're not really sentient, you know, um, and all those type of things. And and really that doesn't comport with reality. And I think to me, this episode is really saying is speaking much more to much more to like a honestly like slavery type of thing mm -hmm. where we're willfully choosing to not believe that people are more intelligent. Right. Mm -hmm. we're, we're willfully putting things down. There's a lot of other places that I could go with this, but I will not. Yeah. Um, but I definitely think that that's more of what this is saying. Yeah. Than necessarily hunting. I, I don't think that this is the Bambi story. Yeah. I do think that this is 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 a story about the ways in which we distort reality so we can mm. continue to do what it is that we want. Right. Even though everything tells us that it should be the wrong thing to do. Right, right, right. So you're speaking in even though you give an example of from history of slavery and views of that. Really, what you're saying is in broad terms, people make excuses or they justify or they ignore facts and reality so they can continue to do something that 
they want to do, even though sure, yeah. the evidence is in front of them that what they're doing yeah. is wrong. Yeah. yeah. Or I, hurting somebody or, yeah. you know, I, again, I, I do think that that's, that's kind of what, to me, that's yeah. what this episode is saying. Yeah, because we do that even, well, taking it back to the hunting thing, the thing is, the reason why, yeah, you could see this as anti-hunting is, you know, he, here where I live in Japan, people still hunt for whales. And even though there's such an overwhelming voice from the international community to stop doing it, that whalers here will still make excuses for why they should continue to do it. And again, I don't want to turn this into a thing about whaling, but it, it shows what you're saying, which is that people will uh, justify, like these hunters are, making justifications for why they should continue to hunt this species and we see that in our own world. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, it's interesting that there are many ways to read a story. But I also found it interesting here that the writer actually says, yeah, that one thing that some people think it's about is not what I intended. And I mm-hmm. think that holds true for lots of stories that we see in Star Trek and on television yeah. in general. Yeah, yeah no, I mean, I, I think that's the, you know, I, when I think of like it being the idea of like, anti-whaling you know one of the the arguments we don't need to anymore we don't we don't we can make the what you get from whaling without whaling you know those kind of things like there is all of that are great arguments against those type of things so Mm -hmm. no 100 percent. i think yeah it, it again the episode has some interesting things to say i think the problem becomes it's the execution of the episode that we really have an issue with. Yeah. Well, Matthew, if you want to talk about an interesting concept with poor execution and enterprise, we've got a real doozy coming up in season two. So just keep your shirt on. (laughs) We'll get there soon. All right. Um, I guess quick final thoughts and ratings on this one, maybe just ratings. Yeah, I mean, I would say um, this is a definitely a very weak episode of Enterprise, and in all honesty, I would, I'd, I'd give this a two out of five. I think there are some interesting ideas, but I do feel like it's just not a very good episode. Yeah, yeah, I'm right there with you. I'm going to give this one only two Boy Scout merit badges. <laughs> nice. All right, everyone. Well, we would love to hear your thoughts on Rogue Planet, and maybe you have a much better take on it than we do, and maybe it's one of your favorite episodes. If so, let us know. There are many ways to do that. The best way is probably to go to Facebook and join the Babel Conference. That's our closed listeners group. There you'll see a post for the episode, and you can talk to us and fellow listeners about what we've discussed here. If you're not already a member please answer the questions and agree to the rules of the forum so that I can let you in. And again, the way to find that is to go to Facebook and type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field. You can also send us an email if you like. Just go to our website, trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and choose Warp 5, and that'll come to us by email. You can also find us everywhere in social media, Twitter, Instagram, all over the place, under the username trekfm. Now, Matthew... When you're not getting ready for your next camping trip, where can people find you? 
Well, you could find me all over the place uh, under the moniker Matt Rushing Zero Two, Twitter, Instagram, Letterbox, Vero, all of those type of places. Uh, you can also find me here on the network doing a show called the 602 Club, which is our whole other side of the network where we don't talk Star Trek. We talk about all those other fandoms that we love. Um, and of course, uh, you can find me here on the network with Literary Tracks as well as The Orb. Literary Tracks is about books in the comics of Star Trek. And The Orb, Chris, you and I talk about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And then on the Nerd Party Network, you can find me doing two shows. One I did with Drea Kaufman, and it's a finished show. And it's called Owl Post. We talked about every single chapter of the Harry Potter series, one chapter at a time. And then, of course, I'm doing aggressive negotiations with John Mills as we talk about Star Wars each and every week. Chris, uh, when you're not trying to find your way in the dark, where can people find you? Well, I'm using a flashlight so I can see what I'm writing. And the list I'm making is a list of all the podcasts that you're doing, because I think you need help remembering them sometimes. <laughs> I do, honestly. <laughs> it happens almost every time I'm recording. If you hear a place there where it might have sounded like I couldn't remember, it's because I couldn't. <laughs> sometimes I tighten those up in editing. But anyway, you can find me uh, doing some more podcasting here on the network. Of course, you mentioned The Orb, Matthew. We have new episodes of that coming out now. Larry Nemechek and I do The Ready Room from time to time. There's Interphase. I'll pop in on literary tricks here and there. And I have other things in the works. And also doing some behind-the-scenes work all the time for the network. You can also find my writing on other topics. I have a website for my magazine, finally a new website, which I built, and I'm doing narrated versions of those as well, if you're interested. And you can find everything I'm doing and chat with me about whatever you like on Twitter. My username is C Brian Jones, letter C and Brian with a Y. That's my username everywhere in social media, but Twitter is where I'm most active. And I'd love to chat with you about Star Trek or Japan or whatever. Now, if you would like to help us keep all this going, we could definitely use your help. If you'd like to find out how to become involved in the network, become an associate producer, help us keep everything moving along, visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash trekfm to find out how. And I'd like to send a huge thank you to everyone who is supporting us now. We could not keep Trek FM going without your help. And I really, really thank you so much for your support. Well, Matthew, the moment you've been waiting for has arrived next week. Get out your fur coat and your whip because there's some Ferengi coming aboard the podcast. Well, Chris, uh, I guess I've been waiting for that. So <laughs> let's go. <laughs> <laughs>